Welcome back, friends, as we continue through First Timothy. Uh, as we finished, uh, really as we started, sorry, the third chapter yesterday, taking a look at some of Paul's thoughts on leadership and some of his advice to Timothy for the kind of people that are fit to serve in church. And be honest, we didn't make it very far yesterday, um, but there was a significant list of words that we tried to unpack. We find ourselves today uh, in verse 4, and we'll work through the rest of this section, this idea of bishops. Remember, that means overseer. And we'll look at what Paul continues to say. And as we begin, Michael, an interesting verse, and I'm going to read this, and then we'll come back to it. Um, he must manage his own household well, keeping his children submissive and respectful in every way. For if someone does not know how to manage his own household, how can he take care of God's church? So we'll stop there. These are interesting verses because on one hand, they make very practical sense that if a person struggles within the confines of how to treat their family, how to manage the sort of conflicts of everyday life, of how to be a leader in the small circle that is their household, how could they then aspire to leadership in the church? And on the surface, Michael, I mean, this is, I think this sounds like wisdom. I think I I would say that we can read this and we think, yeah, that that makes some sense. And as those who live under the heading of pastor, I, I think it is reasonable to kind of assume that one ought to be able to demonstrate leadership in the small circle of our own lives if we are if we have a hope of leading well in the larger circle of the church. Um, and, and so I, I guess I want to you know, one hand and the other hand here. But we start on the first hand with this being, I think, for the most part, pretty sound advice. Yeah, this is not really any meaningful way departure from the overall theme uh, that we're going to get in Timothy, where there is a pretty hierarchical understanding of relationships. You see that here in reference to the family. We very much see that in, in the midst of the church. Um, there is sort of this imagined uh, sort of order uh, which would not have been at all strange at the time of the writing of this letter. I mean, this would in very many ways just fit into the ex- expectation of those who received it. Uh, to the point uh, at hand here, this idea of managing your own household, I do think has particular uh, sort of wisdom for Christian leadership because realistically, uh, it, it's not about being able to see how high you can make your kids jump, for instance, I, th- I think it is at its heart a call to character. Uh, you know, it's the people closest to you in your life. And this isn't obviously just a matter for pastors, right? This is a reality for every person seeking to live out the faith. The The best witness that we have as Christians, and this is certainly to a Christian leadership, is not the charisma of our words. It's not the depth of our vocabulary. It is not fundamentally how inspiring we are, though these are often the character traits that people attribute to spiritual leadership. It's actually our actions. It's what we do. It's how our lives and the fruit of our work uh, engages with the reality of that deeper uh, faith within us. 
So that said, if you're not able to live that out in a way that at home it's compelling, it's going to be very difficult for you to do so when it's time to be in the midst of a congregation. That's on the one hand. And I, so I want to make space here. I know that there's a, a, another hand that we agree on. But I, there is some just sheer wisdom in uh, this isn't about showmanship. And, and if it's not about showmanship, then our lives at home should in some way reflect the same kind of order that we would like to be able to bring as servant leaders in the Christian context. Yeah. Uh, and I do think, Michael, that you and I probably read this verse, we may encounter this idea a, a little differently than people who haven't lived in the church and who haven't tried to raise families within the context of the community. And and let me say on the front end that First Press Spirit Lake has been an exceedingly gracious place to do that. And so th- there are two things that I think I want to unpack about this verse that have kind of uh, asterisks or warnings attached to them. The first is in regard to children. I, I think, you know, having known lots of PKs, pastors, kids. I, I think it's it's interesting how many of them have grown up with this sense of being constantly evaluated, constantly watched. The idea that they had to be held to different standards because their their dad or their mom, generally dad of the people that I know, was a pastor, and the the pressure that they felt, and it felt for them as a negative experience. And and I think, you know, this idea that somehow your parenting is tied to your pastoring is not it's not offensive, but it can be dangerous if it's misunderstood. And and I think for those who live in the pastor's family, that can be a kind of heavy weight. And and again, having said that, I've watched my own kids benefit from the reality of essentially having multitudes of like aunts, uncles, grandparent type figures in their life. I see when they come home and they continue to connect with people in the congregation who ask them questions and who get excited about the baby and who get excited about volleyball season and and what are you studying and, and, and how naturally that plays itself out in community. Um, I, I think my girls have been insulated from that, but I do know many who have lived with it, and they've not experienced it positively. And I feel sorry for them because I, I think that that's unfortunate. Yeah, this is a very much a double-edged sword. So there's a positive in recognizing that Christian leadership is fundamentally not a game of optics. It's not about uh, what we show people. Uh, and then the truth that's behind the scenes. We know how many Christian leaders have indeed lived that way. And when that happens, hypocrisy always has a way of catching up with us. Uh, By the way, this is one of the very practical reasons why in the Reformed tradition we're so uh, quick to emphasize that no pastoral leader of any stripe is perfect. We all stand in need of confession. We we try to be very, very honest about that. Uh, That said, you know, a congregation does need to be aware, and this isn't me speaking to our home congregation. I, I think this is much broader that the church writ large needs to be very aware that the church has not hired 
kids, right? That the family is not in some way occupying a leadership role in the congregation. The, the pastor is seeking to do that. And so if there is a temptation uh, to take, you know, the family and to make it sort of an insular kind of bubble and to have expectations for what that looks like, uh, people will be shocked and it's inevitable. A kid's going to uh, not be perfect. They're, they're going to do the things that kids do. They're going to push boundaries. They're going to ask questions. Uh, there's going to be times where they have a bad day. And if we are unprepared for that, I honestly think that's more on us as adult Christians than it is about the kids who are trying to find a way in the midst of it. So I, I think that at best, maybe we say that the family relationship has something to show us about the strength of a pastor's uh, sort of deeper connection between the faith and lived reality. On the other hand, I think it, it it's a little bit of a fool's game to expect that that pastoral sort of connection will somehow innately produce a kind of behavior or orientation, uh, a, a kind of world perspective that the kids will naturally have. I, I don't know that those things are one-to-one, nor do I think necessarily that's germane to this text, but I do think that's a sort of cultural fragment that some churches have really embodied. Yeah, I think it's hard to read these verses without admitting that they have done some harm. Uh, there may be genuine wisdom in them, but there's the opportunity for misuse. And and I think you and I both know pastors who have been hurt at vulnerable times, because in a family, obviously, when there's a child who is struggling, when there's a young person in your family, your son, daughter, in, in many cases, making poor decisions and bringing some trouble and hardship upon themselves, and at that very time, the church speaks judgmentally over your inability to, to you know, quote, unquote, keep your children submissive and respectful. And, and I know people who have felt the sting of that criticism, and I, I would say in some cases, not deservedly so. And so while there is wisdom here, there is an opportunity for abuse, and sometimes the church has abused its leaders, um, not just pastors, but elders and other leaders, in sort of the umbrella of this verse without maybe taking it, its more compassionate or more pastoral meaning to heart. And um, that's not to criticize the text. I, I do think there's good... I do think there's good direction in the text. I, I don't disagree with the text. I just think that there have been times this text has been used as a very painful, um, it, it's been given a very painful point that I know some have felt. Can, can I maybe, I, I realize how maybe this conversation sounds a little autobiographical as we talk about it and engage with this pastors. I, I'll say for me, a text like this has been more, of a source of inspiration or a sort of a calling ahead that has been for me a, a sort of employment checklist. I know some churches might think of this like, here's the qualifications for Christian leadership. And obviously that is the, the setup to the conversation. So I'm not denying that. But, but personally, I, at the end of the day, can't make a choice for my kids. I mean, I can try to raise them in the faith. I can try to show them 
uh, my deepest values and how that's been fashioned by my belief in Jesus Christ. I can try to live that out in a way that's compelling and invitational. But I also recognize that my love for my children is unconditional, as I believe God's love for us is unconditional. And as we seek to try to show that love to our children, we realize that they're going to make real choices in their life. And as we do the best we can, we hope and trust that they'll do the same. When those choices get made or when those kids move forward, and Clint, you know, here you're 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 looking at a path much farther down the road than we are with younger kids. I mean, I, I think there's a kind of awareness that says, uh, you know, really, we're praying, God, may things go well in the midst of this journey, but recognizing that that every parent, every Christian parent is is trying to do this. And so as a church, I think as we see kids living out the faith, as we baptize little ones, as we bring them up in Sunday school, as we see high schoolers off to college, I think regardless of whether this is the pastor's family or whether it's your family, I think the point here is we are trying to pass on the faith in a meaningful way with the grace and awareness that there are many pitfalls along that journey. And if we use this as a a checklist for judgmentalism, which uh, some churches have, not not every church, uh, and I've been grateful to be in a place that that is not uh, tempted by that. But when that's the church's compulsion, people do get hurt. I think that this goes the wrong way. When it becomes an invitation, maybe even an inspiration that we're all called to live up to, then I think this text um, is very, very helpful in our parenting and in our uh, our seeking as congregations to be uh, faithful to the promises we make on behalf of kids. Yeah, I agree. Absolutely. And I, I don't want to beat this point to death, particularly given that, uh, again, we do have a, a, a fairly small perspective on it from our vantage point. But I also want to point out that it is, um, to the best of our knowledge, it is both written and received by someone who doesn't have children. (laughs) (laughs) Right. (laughs) Which gives it a sort of interesting take. Um, We move on then, and we have this next verse, which again, I think is a fascinating verse. He must not be a recent convert, or he may be puffed up with conceit, and fall into the condemnation of the devil. This is very interesting because in, in the ancient world, as I think we see in our own time, new believers bring with them a, a sense of excitement, a sense of passion, a, a kind of fuel, um, a, an all-in mentality, and there is something very exciting about that. And I, and I think you and I, Michael, have both experienced people who have had, mm-hmm. through an experience, maybe through a hardship, they've had a, a a moment, a kind of, you could even call it a conversion moment, not, not necessarily always literally being converted, but a moment of deepening faith. And they come to church and they say, I want, I want to sign up for everything. Mm-hmm. I want to mm-hmm. lead the youth group. I want to teach Sunday school. And, and I think Paul's words are very wise here that there is a, there is something to be said for a kind of settledness. There is something to be said for a faith journey which has ridden that crest of emotional excitement and been able to find a way to continue to move forward when that kind of passionate fuel 
is no longer the driving force. So something in the short term versus the long term is important. And I think Paul would very much celebrate recent converts. Obviously, Mm -hmm. that would be exciting to him. But it's, it's very interesting to hear him offer a word of conscience, a, a word of caution to Timothy saying, be a little careful with new believers in places of leadership. And, and not that they might be false. What's really interesting is that he feels that their temptation will be to be puffed up with conceit, to be prideful. Mm-hmm. Um, I think I have. I think now I understand this caution in a way that I probably didn't early in my ministry, and I believe I've seen it kind of happen. And maybe I'm better able to understand Paul. But I, this is a really interesting verse to me. I bring a pretty uh, individual take to this, and I'll be really brief here. Uh, and I want to be very clear. I I don't think that this is particularly. Uh, written into this text. This may be me sort of taking this into my own personal interpretation through my own experience. I I think young believers with their passion, with their care, particularly if they're well-spoken and charismatic individuals, have a a kind of particularly compelling magnetic attraction to others. There's a kind of wholeheartedness and joy that comes in the very early stages of faith. And Leadership in the church is one in which charisma is valued. I think it has for for almost all time. Um, maybe that has ebbed and flowed with culture and depending upon t- uh, place. But you know, realistically, there is danger in a person being new to the faith uh, and standing up in front of the church and having the church continually and constantly encouraging and supporting. Not that the church shouldn't do those things, but it's easy, especially if you're a person driven by praise, how quickly that can turn into a sense of arrogance and pridefulness. And, you know, we just finished this series on the seven deadly sins. And uh, throughout that process, pride, the church has always held up as one of the core uh, danger zones for Christian life. And I think there is deep wisdom in saying that a Christian should have gone down the road far enough that they've had to confess some sins, that they've needed to bump up against those walls where the faith isn't easy, where it's another day of making another choice, where today I am going to behave Christianly, not because it's easy, but because that is who I am by the grace of Jesus Christ. That's the kind of thing you earn with time. That's not just handed to you day one. And I think that there's some deep wisdom in that. Um, even like uh, to confess, uh, that's that's me taking my my own sort of glance at this. But but I think that there's deep wisdom in what Paul's saying. Yeah. So this isn't a very good analogy, but um, the last time I was out with my brother's family, my niece is learning to drive, and so I went with them and we're driving around neighborhoods and stuff. And the the um, they live not far from an interstate, and so my brother said, "You want to try the interstate?" And she said, "No, no, I'm not ready." And the we we get that in other areas, right? There is a seasoning. You you want a Christian leader with some passion, with some zeal. Of course, that's important. But it's also important that they've slogged through the the dry days, that they've been through those periods of struggle. And I I just find this a very interesting thing, both in terms of the church's perspective, the recent cons, convert, and the individual's perspective, the temptation to be 
conceded. I, I think, you know, this is a, this, to me, again, this shows the depth of Paul's insights into the working of not only the church, but the individual faith. And then we finish again with another fascinating. I'd love to preach some of these verses sometime and maybe should, but moreover, verse seven, he must be well thought of by outsiders so that he may not fall into disgrace and the snare of the devil. Michael, I can't think of another place in Scripture where the Bible or the church community cares about what yep. outsiders think yep. of insiders. This is a, I, I, this is a unique verse. The idea that a pastoral leader, that a church person, should be well-regarded Outsiders, non-Christians, non-church community, um, I think what it's likely that's what this means. That is very interesting because it's very modern. We we would agree that yeah, you know you, you don't want a leader who's sideways with people outside of the church. You don't want one who's thought of by the community as not you know not a very decent person or not trustworthy or those kind of things, but. But to see that here in Scripture is a, a very insightful, and I, I can't think of another voice in the New Testament that says something like that. Yeah, I I think that we do see may, maybe some very fleeting images of it throughout the letters. Um, I do think this is particularly powerful because, to your point, how contemporary this is, when the church lives out its faith in such a way that it's more about the standards of judgment, when it's more about what you should and shouldn't do than it is about the transformation of character and the salvific kind of conversion that comes over a lifetime of a person being reminded of the good news in Jesus Christ, how it changes us. If our faith goes the wrong way, then what ends up happening inevitably is the church leader becomes fixated on the applause and acceptance and the, the the conceit, quite frankly, of a community that they are put in trust of. It becomes all about the center of the leader and the sh- small world of those around them. And inevitably, when that happens, there's only going to come a day where the world looks in and sees what's true, that that this, this is not working. This is not reflecting the kind of transformation of that new kingdom Jesus proclaimed. There is an amazing, even if unexpected truth, that we learn something deeply true about the state of our individual faith and our own leadership as Christian leaders when we look and see what those outside that direct leadership see in us. Um, that is that is a challenging, and I would even say it's a controversial thought. I think there would be many who, if you said that outside the context of this text— they, they would probably push back against that. But I, I think there's deep truth in it, that there is a kind of wisdom that comes when we're humble enough to look at the inside of another. Uh, it's not always easy uh, information, but I think it's important. Yeah, and I'd, I'd want to push this further and say that this isn't just for leaders. I think it matters how the world sees Christians. The, mm. the world really needs to see followers of Jesus being honest, being truthful, practicing 
Christian ethics. You know, and this one's a tough one to live up to. I've been on the wrong side of this a couple times. Early on when I was helping the football team, there was a moment a referee made a horrible, horrible call that was going to be close to costing us a game, and I was voicing my opinions. (laughs) And I remember this was a home game, and he said, one more word, and you're you're out. And I remember thinking, what do I do? And and the the thought that came to me was, I can't, as a pastor, get marched out of a football game in front of all these people who are here. Like, th- there goes Pastor Clint, who couldn't shut up. And then uh, I also had a moment where there was something going on in a local business that didn't make any sense. And I was kind of fussing with one of the people trying to figure something out. And another person who's now in First Press remembered that, and they they confessed to me one time, I wasn't real impressed with you the first time <laughs> I saw you. And I and those are those are humbling hmm. reminders of the kind of uh, responsibility that you wear when you have a title. In my case, that title is pastor. But I think I would push that to say. That mm-hmm. title of Christian is mm-hmm. equally, not equally important. I would even say more important. And the responsibility that we all bear, whether we're leaders or not, to kind of uphold the yeah. idea and and the representation of ambassadors of Jesus in the world around us. But um, this is a cha- this is a good verse, challenging verse. Well, uh, friends, be mindful of where we're at. Uh, clearly, there's a lot of meat here, and I hope that something is connected with you today, uh, and I hope that it encourages you to live out your faith as a person of character, uh, to be humble and honest with yourself. And uh, in doing so, I, I think to your point, Clint, it does reflect to the world uh, something of that work that is still happening in each one of us. So I hope that's true for you today, uh, and look forward to seeing you tomorrow. Thanks, everybody. Thanks, everybody.